This week, are brain scans for pain ready for the courtroom? We're not sure how reliable they are. It could be that they're not picking up on um, every type of pain that there might be. And scientists gear up to get to know Pluto. What is it like to be an object out there at the fringes so far from the sun that you don't really get enough heat to be doing much of anything interesting? Plus how mayonnaise might be affecting your health. This is The Nature Podcast for the 26th of February 2015. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Now then, if you've eaten any processed or packaged food today, a biscuit or a sandwich with shop-bought mayonnaise, you've probably ingested some emulsifying agents. They're often added to food to increase stability and shelf life, but a new study links two commonly used emulsifiers with diseases associated with gut inflammation, diseases that we've seen increase in recent decades. For example, inflammatory bowel conditions like Crohn's disease and colitis and more mild inflammation that seems to promote obesity. To find out how the study came about and whether I should change my diet, I called Andrew Gewertz, who led the study at Georgia State University in the US. A common thread in all these diseases is that they are inflammatory diseases and they're associated with changes in the composition of gut bacteria. Since these are diseases that are increasing in incidence, we thought about what type of factors in the environment or non-genetic factors might be influencing the microbiota. Emulsifiers seemed like a very good candidate, particularly because they're in many processed foods whose consumption have increased in approximate parallel to these inflammatory diseases, and because these molecules, emulsifiers, have detergent-like properties. Right, and crucially, you thought that these emulsifiers might be disrupting the mucus that normally protects the gut wall from these microbes. Yes, that's absolutely correct. We hypothesized that they might be affecting the mucus layer directly, or allowing bacteria to penetrate the mucus by changing the surface properties of bacteria. So how did you test your theory? So we administered emulsifiers to mice, uh, both by putting it in their drinking water and by mixing it into their chow. And then we simply tracked the mice. And what we found was that in mice that you would consider normal or wild-type mice, the emulsifiers promoted low-grade inflammation that was associated with obesity and an early stage of of type 2 diabetes. In mice that have a genetic predisposition to develop colitis that's similar to inflammatory bowel disease, in those mice, the emulsifiers triggered colitis. And why is it that low-level inflammation is linked with metabolic syndrome, with obesity? So there is a theory called the inflammatory explanation for insulin resistance, which says that when there is a lot of pro-inflammatory gene expression, that uh, important metabolic receptors, such as the insulin receptor, don't function properly. 
and that results in overeating and then um, that can drive obesity. Were you actually able to identify a change in the mucus and a change in the gut microbes in your mice? Yes. So what we observed was that the mucus was thinner and it resulted in bacteria attaining a much closer localization to the intestinal cells. And not only that, it changed the population of gut bacteria and specifically it made them more pro-inflammatory. So we think that that's the mechanism by which emulsifiers are promoting inflammatory diseases. And of course your experiments were done in mice, but do you have good reason to think that the same effects might be seen in in humans? So these are experiments that are in process. At the moment, what we've observed is that in humans who are obese or have type 2 diabetes that intestinal bacteria are closer to intestinal cells and the mucus is thinner, suggesting that some of the same mechanisms may be at play. The next step will be a trial experiment where people are fed emulsifiers. Last year, another Nature paper suggested that artificial sweeteners might be promoting obesity and diabetes. Do you think that food additives are being tested thoroughly enough before they're put in our food? Uh, I do not think current testing is adequate. Uh, Most testing that is currently done focuses on promotion of cancer, typically looking for uh, ability of an agent to mutagenize DNA or are looking at acute toxicity. But I think the paper you refer to and our results are really implying that this level of testing is not adequate and that a more common consequence of ingestion of chemicals is not going to be an acute illness, but more of a low-grade illness that has more subtle effects, but yet very detrimental effects on health. Have you yourself stopped eating foods with emulsifiers in them? I have. Uh, My wife generally does the shopping, and since we've been doing this work over the past year or so, she pays a lot of attention to labels, and we have uh, cut down our consumption of, of foods that have emulsifiers in them. That was Andrew Gewertz. Coming up. A pair of missions to the dwarves of our solar system. But first, here's some short science stories from outside nature. It's the Research Highlights, read by Noah Baker. Sun worshippers may have more to worry about than the DNA damage that occurs while they're actually sunbathing. New research from Yale suggests that the damage continues for several hours afterwards. The mechanism involves melanin, the skin pigment that's thought to protect us against cancer-causing mutations. The researchers found that, in mice, UVA radiation creates melanin byproducts that continue to damage DNA for up to three hours after exposure. If we could find a way to block the formation of these byproducts, they say we could develop an evening after sunscreen that could offer some protection against this delayed damage. Read more in Science. Bacteria hiding in tumours could shield them from attack by the immune system. 
Scientists at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem studied a bacteria that commonly lives in the mouth, Fusobacterium nucleatum. This species has been linked with premature births and colon cancer. When the researchers added the bacteria to a petri dish of tumour cells, they found that it sticks to the cells and protects them by activating a particular immune cell receptor. The results could explain why certain tumours, especially intestinal ones, seem to have higher levels of bacteria. The study was published in the journal Immunity. has been dubbed the year of the dwarf planet and scientists are gearing up to meet two of them in particular ex-planet Pluto and Ceres, the largest object in the asteroid belt. NASA are expecting their space probes to arrive at these destinations later this year. Alex Whitsey, a reporter based in Colorado, has written a feature about these missions and some of the people behind them. She popped into the studio to tell Kerry a bit more. There's Ceres, so that is what we usually think of as an asteroid. It orbits in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And then the second one is Pluto, everybody's favorite exoplanet, which is out there beyond Neptune, which is going to be visited by a spacecraft this summer. Right, so plenty going on. I mean, what are these little dwarf planets like? Perhaps we should start with Ceres, given that that's uh, the first one to be visited. Yeah, Ceres is one of those cold little rocky things. It looks sort of round and lumpy like a lot of asteroids do. Ceres is actually the biggest asteroid of all. It was found in 1801, and this is the first time anyone is going to visit it. It's the NASA mission called Dawn. Dawn has been flying around for quite some time in the solar system, went and visited another asteroid called Vesta a few years ago, but is going to go check out Ceres this spring. Right. Asteroid field trip. Tastic. And I mean, Pluto is a lot more well known, obviously, but later in the summer, we might hope to learn even more. Yes. New Horizons mission will be flying by Pluto in July. The mission has been flying since 2006. It's so far out in the solar system. It's just been going and going in space. It's actually the fastest spacecraft ever launched, and it's been zipping along for the last nine years. And in July, on July 14th to be precise, New Horizons will go zipping by Pluto at a relatively close distance and give us our best look yet at what it looks like. So we've known about these two bodies for, I mean, in the case of Ceres, you know, hundreds of years, basically. Um, why, why is everyone so interested in them now? Because they're sort of the last unexplored frontier of the solar system. So we know about planets like Mars. We've been to Mars about a zillion times. We know about planets like Mercury and Venus and ones that are a bit closer to us. We've sent Voyager and, and other missions like uh, Galileo and Cassini to the outer planets. But we've never, ever been to these little icy outer worlds. Now I'm talking about Pluto here. And the question is, what do they look like? How icy are they? What is it like to be an object out there at the fringes, sort of so far from the sun that you don't really get enough heat to be doing much of anything interesting, but you can kind of get ices burning off your surface and creating an atmosphere and condensing back down. How does that all work? And what are these objects like out there? You've been profiling a few of the scientists, uh, especially two of the scientists who've been working on the Pluto-bound mission. Um, Tell me a little bit about the feature you've written for Nature this week. 
It's a brother-sister team, which you don't often find. Their names are Elliot and Leslie Young. Their father's a famous uh, professor at MIT. He studied the biological effects of weightlessness and trained to be a shuttle astronaut. So Elliot and Leslie and their younger brother basically grew up in this kind of space family. I mean, they literally grew up playing poker with visiting astronauts when they were little. But the really interesting thing that both their father told me and they told me is you know, they all they didn't just end up doing space science like their dad. They ended up doing planetary science, and they ended up doing Pluto, of all things. Leslie Young was involved in a lot of major discoveries about Pluto, like finding its atmosphere back in 1988, discovering methane there, discovering the relative sizes of Pluto and its big moon, Charon. And Elliot was involved in the early years in mapping the face of Pluto. How are they feeling about um, the New Horizons mission, you know, almost achieving its uh, long goal? Yeah, so they've been waiting a really long time, of course, like everybody involved in this mission. Leslie is actually one of the deputy project scientists, and and her job is to sort of orchestrate what they call the encounter, basically the flyby. So she has this unbelievable spreadsheet of everything that's going to happen up to the actual moment on July 19th when we get the closest pass. Her brother is actually not on the mission itself, but he's going to be doing some support work at the end of June, actually, in the Southern Hemisphere. Pluto's shadow is going to cross across Earth. And if you are an astronomer standing right where Pluto's shadow is going to cross, you can measure it and get a really good estimate of you know, what the atmosphere is doing and what the size of Pluto is doing. So Elliot is going to be down probably in Australia, chasing Pluto from down there. Another thing that's going, they're going to do is this, uh, this telescope in a plane called SOFIA that NASA runs. They're going to be taking that down to New Zealand. And that day, June 29th, when the, when the shadow's passing across, the SOFIA team will get in the plane, go up into the air, and basically fly in the, in the shadow of Pluto for as long as possible to make observations. Considering how excited everyone got about Rosetta and Philae, from whom we still haven't heard, I suppose, it's still sitting on its little comet, waiting to be, um, waiting to be found or not. Tragic. Yeah, isn't it? Um, Has that reinvigorated, I suppose, the the world of, um, you know, these missions going to kind of far-flung places and odd little shapes and bits of rock here and there? Yeah, absolutely. Because like you said, we've done Mars, we've done the big ones. So here we are in sort of the edges. But I think the first time you go to any world, no matter what it is, it gets kind of extraordinary. So a comet, like when Rosetta went to the comet, fine, comets are neat, comets are cool. But when you actually get there and see these jets spraying off the surface, it's actually kind of fantastic. And the New Horizons team likes to talk about this. There was a series of postage stamps issued by the US in, I can't remember, I think the early 1990s. And it was all the planets in the solar system. And they had nice, big, pretty pictures and all this stuff about them. And then Pluto is this sad little gray world. And it says, Pluto, not yet explored. And so now we're finally getting to do that. We're going to change that. We'll explore it. Alex Witsey there talking to Kerry. And there's also a fun infographic showing details of the Dawn and New Horizon missions in the mag this week. Check that out at nature.com forward slash news. News time now and joining me on the line from Washington, D.C. is Lauren Morello. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Now, your first story is about a huge study launched in the UK to track 80,000 children from birth. What's this? So this is what's called a cohort study, um, where scientists try to track a large group of people over a long period of time. And that kind of study allows you to get at questions such as whether smoking during pregnancy impacts how well children do in school or how children who are born into poor homes 
do in life compared to their counterparts from richer families. Right, okay. And this this British study is called the LIFE study. This is similar to a study on your side of the Atlantic, isn't it, called the National Children's Study, which recently came to a halt. Why did that happen? So the National Children's Study was cancelled in December after about 15 years and $1.2 billion. Um, and that ran into problems in part because of the way healthcare is provided in the United States. It's a patchwork system. We have private insurance. It made it a lot harder to kind of organize participants and get the kind of medical data that you need on an ongoing basis to do these studies. But in the UK, you have the National Health Service, and that makes things a bit easier. So I think people are a little more optimistic Now, there are other cohort studies going on around the world. What distinguishes uh, this British study, the LIFE study, from those other cohorts? Right. There are cohort studies going on in um, Norway and Denmark, and they're each looking at 100,000 children. But this British study is different because it wants to focus really intensively on pregnancy and then the first two years uh, of life with the idea that that early start is crucial for future development and kind of sets the stage for the rest of these these people's lives. Correct me if I'm wrong, about a third of these children that are going to be part of this study may well live to the age of 100. What sort of exciting information do you think we're going to glean from such a massive study? You know, it's hard to say. I think the interesting things tend to be surprises and scientists tend to think of questions to ask as they they go along. The key with these studies is taking comprehensive data, doing it from the beginning and taking it consistently. We don't know what the best things are going to be, but we can be certain that they'll be pretty cool. Yeah, and I suppose like we'll have different ways of asking questions, maybe. Right. I mean, we might develop new ways to analyze this data that we don't know of now, but if you have a good set of data, you can go back in and slice it and dice it as you figure things out. A lot of stuff goes on in a, in a human throughout its life. I mean, how do they choose what sorts of data they're collecting? They go for some basic pieces of information. They're going to be storing tissue samples of various sorts that includes things like blood and urine and feces, breast milk from the children's mothers, pieces of placenta, and then they're going to be trying to measure um, data from the environments that these children are growing up in, um, pollution, um, they're going to be looking at family characteristics, they're going to be looking at things like income, and they're going to be filming the children interacting with their parents when they're, they're babies. Where are all these samples going to be stored? That's quite a lot of stuff. Uh, They're going to need some really big freezers, but hopefully they've built that into their budgeting. And our second story then is about a much smaller cohort, if you can even call it a cohort, of top athletes who have had repeated brain injuries and end up with a degenerative disease of the brain. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, So this is a condition that has a really long name, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but it's a pretty simple idea that if you get repeated head injuries like concussions that uh, years later you can start developing symptoms like headaches and memory problems and short temper kind of personality changes um, and there are signs of a a kind of dementia. It's been um, observed in American football players. There are some cases in hockey players and people are looking at other sports like rugby to see how prevalent this is. But it's not limited to sports. It's just that if you're playing American football, you're probably hitting your head pretty hard um, more than the average person. It doesn't sound like news to me that repetitive brain injuries leads to a kind of mushy brain in older years. What's, what's sort of new about this? Well, so this 
condition, CTE for short, was first described in boxers in the 20s and 30s, but since about the mid-2000s, um, there's been a lot of research revealing that it seems to be increasing in American football players, possibly as football players grow larger and heavier and they hit each other harder. But the interesting thing is that when you look at the brains of people thought to have this disorder, the brain damage that you see seems to mimic in some aspects what you get with Alzheimer's disease or dementias that you normally see in much older people. So one of the questions is whether CTE, this disorder linked to head trauma from concussion is distinct from something like Alzheimer's. Right. So there's a drive, is there, in the scientific community to kind of lay out some diagnostic criteria for this condition? Right. Part of what's driving this is that this kind of disorder is hard to study. You can only diagnose it after somebody has died by looking at samples of that person's brain. And so there aren't tons of samples around. Um, What scientists are hoping to do is see if there's a particular set of signs you see in the brain of somebody with this disorder that can be used as a common baseline for all the studies that are going on on uh, brain samples, basically to get everybody on the same page and really decide what sets this apart from a similar disorder such as Alzheimer's disease. I'm sort of surprised that there are many samples at all. I mean, how often do footballers donate their brains for science? Well, this is a growing concern for American football players. Some 4,500 of them have sued the National Football League here in the United States, and that lawsuit is moving towards a settlement that could be as much as $765 million. And as this research has gotten more publicity, there are football players that have essentially bequeathed their brains to science. In our story, we talk about a Chicago Bears defensive back named Dave Dewerson, who was tormented basically by dementia. Um, He killed himself in 2011, but before he died, he asked that his brain be donated to science because he wanted to know whether football made him sick. And finally, as we learn more about this disease, do you think that anything's going to change in the the sports industry? Uh, It seems like things may already be um, changing. There's a lawsuit pending against the NFL. I think they've already made some changes in response to the type of concern that prompted that lawsuit. And at least in the States, at a lot of different levels, people are looking at whether helmets that are used for professional or college or even children's sports leagues are sufficient and um, putting in place new rules for how long athletes should sit out after they've been diagnosed uh, with a concussion. Because one aspect of this is that your risk is thought to be higher, I think, if you don't have appropriate recovery time from a concussion. Thanks, Lauren. And you can read all of those stories on our news site. Finally this week, we take a look at the latest iteration of neuroscience in the courtroom. One way to assess how much pain someone is in is to ask them. But pain is a subjective experience. One person's dull ache could be agony for someone else. There's also the possibility that people could lie. A less crude measure would be to find the signals of pain in the brain. Lawyers especially would like to use brain scans to get a more objective measure of pain. In fact, such evidence has already been used to settle legal disputes. But some scientists say that these techniques are not yet ready for the courtroom. Nature reporter Sarah Reardon has been investigating the issue for a feature, and I gave her a call, starting off by asking her how we traditionally measure pain. 
Well, right now, the way that they have people rate pain is to look at a row of smiley faces, and some of them are smiling, and some of them are like screaming or crying in pain, and they just say, which one, how do you feel, which one matches your pain state? And if you've experienced your leg being blown off or something, and you've got a headache, you're going to have a different um, perception of how bad that headache is, as opposed to someone who thinks that this headache is the worst pain they've ever had. And so that person's pain might be a nine, whereas a person who's had a horrible injury in the past might be like, oh, well, this is just a three. So obviously it's desirable to get a more objective measure of pain. When did these brain imaging techniques to assess pain hit the courtroom? The first time that we know that they did was several years ago in Arizona. There was a case in which a truck driver who had had his arm burned in a chemical accident had brought in a brain scan showing that he was still in chronic pain years after the injury. But they could have been being used for quite some time. Uh, most injury cases settle out of court, so we really have no way of knowing. What are the outcomes of these cases? Are the brain scans helping people to win legal battles? In this case, it did. There haven't been a whole lot of cases that have gone to trial, though, um, and that we're seeing a few like right now that are going in the next few months. They're trying to introduce this evidence into court. Uh, whether or not the judge will accept it is a, is a different question. Is this backed up by, you know, robustly validated science? Yes and no. There is a lot of very good science showing the pain is detectable in the brain, especially acute pain. If you burn yourself, there's no question that you can see that fairly easily. Chronic pain, which is the subject of most of these suits, is a little more difficult to detect. There is a growing literature on it, um, but some of the companies that are going ahead to offer these have not necessarily validated them in a large number of patients just yet. It's not clear whether things that hold true for the few patients they look at can actually be generalizable to any individual patient who might come in and have his or her brain scanned. What makes chronic pain complicated as compared to acute pain to detect? Chronic pain is really difficult. Scientists don't understand it terribly well because it seems to be very tied up in a mental state. And that's not necessarily to say that people are imagining that they're in pain, but even after sometimes the nerves may have healed that were initially injured in your arm or your back or whatever, the brain is still convinced that it's in pain. And so while a lot of people are think that this is something that can eventually be very useful, whether it is or not right now very much depends on the method. And in terms of the method, I mean, how do some of these studies into that long-term chronic pain, how do they actually work? One company, for instance, has developed a big database of people who do and do not have chronic pain, not a huge database, about 30 people so far, but they get a range of genders and ages and just see what the brain looks like between these two groups. And then if they have an individual patient come in, which set do they match up most closely with? Another way that people are doing it is um, to take a brain scan, have them lay there peacefully in the scanner, then get up and walk around or crook their neck in a certain way, whatever it is that makes their pain start, and then lay back down and take a scan of their brain again and see what the difference is between those two. And then a third method kind of takes advantage of the idea that people in chronic pain have a, a heightened sensibility to touch if they just kind of brush their injured wrist or whatever it is, then the brain will light up, even though that's not normally a painful thing. Are there people who think that these techniques shouldn't be used as a reliable measure of how much pain someone's in? 
It's definitely controversial um, right now, and we're not sure how reliable they are. Um, it could be that they could be cheated. It could be that they're not picking up on um, every type of payment there might be, which is really the bigger concern is that this is going to be something that's used against patients and um, plaintiffs, ultimately, that an insurance company, for instance, might force you to prove that you're in pain. Companies right now are saying that they can't prove a negative. That doesn't mean that someone isn't going to try. Whose decision is it then whether these tests should be legal to be used in a courtroom? It's not so much a question of legal. It's a question of whether a judge wants to admit them or not, whether a judge is convinced that this is solid evidence that needs to be there. And that's going to um, differ from state to state, from court to court. Um, The standards for introducing something as evidence are different than saying, like at a scientific conference, that we have the statistically valid measure in a courtroom if it's just like there's a really good chance that this is true. It's more likely than not that this is actually supporting their pain. And whether or not the case would turn on this particular piece of evidence um, doesn't necessarily matter. But it's one more thing that an attorney could introduce to uh, support the client's claim. Where do you think this is heading? Do you think that we're going to see more neuroscience in the courts? I think, yes, we definitely are going to be seeing more neuroscience in the courtroom. Um, It seems like the number of cases that try and introduce this evidence has been increasing over the past years, not just in pain, but also in tests for mental illness, for instance, um, that might be some sort of mitigating factor in somebody's sentencing. That was Sarah Ridden. That's it for this week. Join us again next time when biology editor Henry G comes into the studio with the latest lowdown on the handyman, Homo habilis. See you then. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Jeff Marsh. 